0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, I pray that as we spend time with Jesus, as we spend time in your word this morning that by your spirit you would help us to look more like him and to love more like him pray these things in christ's name amen please be seated Well, this past week uh, the church staff spent a morning discussing a really great book called the spirit of the disciplines by dallas willard we picked this book to guide our thinking as we've been engaging in some of the spiritual practices like fasting during this season of Lent. And in this book, Willard argues that the American church has a skewed view of Christianity, and this skewed view impacts our experience of the Christian life. The problem, he says, is how we answer the question what does it mean to be saved? We've lost touch with the full meaning of salvation, he argues. And because of this, our experience of grace is so often shallow, and our growth in the Lord is so often stunted. And the root issue that Willard points to is a surprising one—God's forgiveness. This is the thing that has done the most harm to God's purposes in the Church. This is how he puts it. We have restricted the Christian idea of salvation to mere forgiveness of sins. And what he means is that so many of us think of salvation, and again, I'm quoting him, we think of salvation as a moment that began our religious life instead of the daily life we receive from God. So put differently, we've confused birth or new birth with a life. And as a result, we're missing out on the abundant life that we read about on every single page in the New Testament. Willard says the greatest danger to the church today is that of pitching its message too low. And I think many of us, including myself, have settled for this low bar. Speaking personally, I think about the spiritual goals that I set for myself this year that are doing nothing but gather dust on the pages of my journal. I think about the bad habits and the unhealthy patterns that I've fallen back into, like entertaining, proud, and unkind thoughts and not just entertaining them but harboring them and wasting time on my screens. So every time I preach a sermon, I'm preaching to myself, but I think that's especially true of this morning. The sermon is as much for me as it is for any one of you who is frustrated with the gap between our desire to spend time with Jesus and to be like Him and the reality that we experience. You know, I went to the funeral of Renee Davison this past week, and I never got to meet her, but it was a wonderful celebration of her life. And during the funeral, I was reminded that life is so precious and so short and that I don't want to waste it. In our passage this morning in Philippians, Paul shows us what a life unwasted looks like. He gives us a full vision of what it means to be saved. And so here's my plan for the morning. First, I want to look at Paul's vision of salvation together. And then secondly, I want to talk about how we might experience this kind of salvation for ourselves. So first, Paul's vision of salvation. And we're mostly going to be looking at verses 4 through 14. So if I were to give this section of Philippians a subtitle, I would call it this. The Life of Paul, A Study in Two Self-Portraits. Here, Paul is painting a picture of salvation by describing his sense of identity, his sense of worth, what he calls his confidence, in two distinct phases of his life. In verses four through six, we see the first self-portrait. Before he was a Christian, what gave value to Paul's life was his pedigree and his performance. You see, Paul was Jewish, and he reveled in the privileges of being part of God's chosen people. And he wasn't just a regular guy. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was part of the Jewish 1%. And Paul's performance fueled his sense of worth. He was a member of the elite class and he exceeded all high expectations that were placed upon him. He was unrivaled in his obedience and in his zeal for the Lord. He was like the child of the president of Harvard, graduating from Harvard at the top of her class. Paul was the top 1% of the top 1%. And of course, we're not first century Jews, but I think that we can relate to this kind of thinking that Paul is describing here in his first self-portrait. For us, that might mean locating our worth in things like the school that we went to, or the life experiences that we've had, or maybe our job, the company that we work for. And I think this performance metric is, is quite easy to relate to. Our American culture runs on competition. So in whatever game you're playing, whether that's socially or financially or professionally, where are you trying to win? One way to figure out how this lands in your life is to ask yourself this question. When you want someone to like you or to be impressed with you, maybe in a first conversation, what do you hope that they find out about you? What do you try to subtly, subtly weave into the conversation? Well, after Paul outlines his very elite resume, he makes a hard pivot in verse seven. Yet whatever gains I had, I now regard as loss. And more than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish. Paul's saying all that other stuff, his Jewish pedigree, his remarkable performance, these things used to be assets for him, but now they're liabilities. None of it matters now, and in fact, it's a hindrance to him pursuing Jesus. He considers all that used to matter as rubbish. And the Greek word here is a fun one, skubala. I like to think of this as the one canonical cuss word. It means excrement or dung You can probably think of another four-letter word. (laughs) Paul is saying all that was precious is scuba, compared to knowing Christ. Now knowing this helps, I think, explain some of the odd language that we see at the beginning of our passage. The language in verses 2 and 3 of the mutilators and the dogs. Paul here is talking about the people who are saying that to be right with God you need to be circumcised. In order to be a real Christian, in other words, you need to follow Jewish law and customs. But Paul says, absolutely not. That's going backwards, and we don't go backwards. We go forward. We press on ahead instead. And in verses seven through 14, Paul shows us what it looks like to press on. And this is the second self-portrait we see. Now, if you put these two portraits side by side, they look like portraits of two different men. And in some ways, they are. In the first self-portrait, we see Saul, a Pharisee, persecutor of the Church. and In the second, we see Paul, the apostle, the servant of the Church. And here in this second self-portrait, Paul is describing a totally new way of viewing himself and his sense of identity and worth. The foundation of his new life has nothing to do with his pedigree or with his past performance. And it has everything to do with Christ. We see that very clearly in verse nine. His confidence is not in a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You see the ground floor of his new identity is here, the righteousness of Christ. And everything is built on top of that. Everything is built on the top of the fact that he has been justified by Jesus and that he belongs to Jesus. And as you look at this self, second self-portrait, you'll begin to see that it's radically Christ-centered. Jesus is mentioned 14 times by name or by pronoun in verses seven through 14. This portrait is absolutely saturated with Jesus. It's like Paul is saying, the, the absolute most important thing that anyone could ever know about me is that I love Jesus. Because Christ has opened up a new reality for him. Paul's inhabiting a different universe and he's orbiting a new gravitational center. The shape and the trajectory of his life is changed. And so it's no surprise that if you stare at this second portrait long enough, you'll begin to see Jesus you'll notice it bears a striking resemblance to Jesus Christ. What we see in fact is that Paul has modeled this portrait of himself directly after the Christ hymn that we read about in Philippians 2. Just as Jesus did not consider his privilege something to be used for his own advantage, Paul considers his privilege to be a loss. Just as Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, and was exalted by God, so Paul, in verse 10, talks about becoming like Jesus in his death so that he might share in Christ's resurrection. In this picture, we're definitely looking at Paul, but there's such a likeness to Jesus. And this isn't by accident. Of course, it's all because of God's grace, but I think it would be a mistake to see Paul's transformation as something that just happens. That just happened to him. Just look at the activity and the energy of Paul throughout this passage. I want to know. I want to share. I want to obtain. I haven't obtained it yet, right? Paul is a work in progress like all of us, but he says, I press on to make it my own. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, I press on toward the goal. It's hard to read this passage and not lose your breath. I think this tells us something really important, something that we should pay attention to. You know, sometimes I think that we think people become saints as if by accident. Like God just decides you're gonna become a saint and you're gonna become a saint, but you're not going to. But I don't think that's how Paul describes it. Paul is this way, at least in part, because of all of the energy that he has put into pursuing Jesus Christ. Becoming a saint, in other words, is symbiotic. Paul is working out his salvation and it is God who is at work in him. Paul is participating in grace. And this is what it looks like. Now what's the most surprising thing to me about this passage is not that Paul is like this next-level saint, right? I think we all expect that because it's the Apostle Paul. But what's most surprising to me about this passage is that Paul seems to think that every single one of us can live like this. It's possible for all of us. And he says as much in verses 15 and 16. He says, Thinking about the Christian life in this way is how mature people think. And if you don't think like this, God will reveal it to you in due time. And then in verse 17, he calls us all to imitate him, assuming that it's possible. So what do we do with that? Well, I think if our reaction is to think that living like Paul and looking like Paul is unrealistic or ridiculous, well, I would humbly suggest that this only confirms what Dallas Willard said about our skewed view of salvation. So I think there's two options before us—either Paul is a liar, or this kind of life is possible. We can all, in time—of course, it takes time—experience this kind of life. Well, I don't think Paul is a liar. I think we all can be living Saints, and I'm not just talking about the type of people that have a day in the calendar—I'm talking about ordinary people—regular people like you and me recovering sinners who are growing in grace day by day, moment by moment. You, I look out here and I, I see some of those kinds of people. <clears throat> we probably all can imagine those kinds of people in our lives, people who spend so much time with Jesus that they begin to look like Jesus and they begin to love like Jesus. So the question before us this morning is not, is this really possible, but do I actually want this kind of life? Do I actually want to be a saint? Or are we more like Augustine who who said in his confessions, Lord, make me holy. Please just don't do it yet. Do we want to be saints? And if we answer yes to that question, yes, Lord, I do want to be a saint. Well, the obvious next question is, well, how do we get there from here? How do we bridge that gap? Well, I have good news for us this morning, and I have bad news. I'll start with the bad news first. Just like there's no shortcut to getting into shape, there's no shortcut to growing up in Christ. Making progress in our walk with God isn't so formulaic as losing weight, right? Consume fewer calories than you burn. But it's also not really that mysterious either. There are actual things, there are actual ways where we can grow up in our walks with God. We worship God like we're doing right now in church. We pray, we read scripture, we fast, we love our neighbors. And speaking practically, if we want to experience the rich life with Christ that Paul has experienced and has described, we need to do more than just listen to a sermon and feel a little conviction. Listening to a sermon without putting it into practice is as useful as watching a spin class on TV while sitting on your couch. Don't stay on the couch. God is inviting us to experience the joy of a life lived for Christ right now, today. So that's the bad news. There aren't any shortcuts to this kind of life, to the things that we're talking about. But here's the good news. God has already given us everything that we need for this. God has given us his son who loves us and died for us and gave himself for us. He's given us his spirit who empowers us. He's given us one another for encouragement and as models to imitate one another. He's placed people in our lives that we can love sacrificially. He's given us his word and his sacraments to feed us and he's given us his ear so that we can pray to him and talk with him. You know, earlier I said that there were no shortcuts, and that's true, but I do want to offer what I'm calling two graceful practices, two things that can enrich the disciplines, the tools that God has given us to grow up, things like worship and prayer and acts of love. And the things that I'm going to talk about aren't substitutes for these things, but they are practices that help us open up to God's grace to be more receptive to God's presence in our lives, in the ways that God wants to speak to us and transform us. So here are the two things. The first is about preparation. We prepare the night before for things that matter. Think about catching a flight early in the morning or taking the SATs. The best way to miss a flight or to fail a test is to stay up too late. And I think the same is true with experiencing God in a powerful way at church, or at prayer as we begin our days. Getting enough sleep is one of the best ways that we can grow in grace. You could even think as, of sleep as a kind of spiritual discipline. And The principle or the idea here is that faithfulness and fruitfulness begins the night before. So here's a small example of how I've put this into practice recently. Well, last night I wanted to do nothing more than to watch the historic Duke UNC Final Four game. I watched a little bit of it, but I didn't watch the second half and I didn't do it so that I could actually be awake as I was preaching this morning. And I realized this is small. This is not an exactly a cross to bear, but this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. A small, intentional decision that set me up to be fully present with you this morning before the Lord. Faithfulness and fruitfulness begins the night before. And the second graceful practice is cultivating what I'm calling a posture of radical openness. This is maybe not the best way to describe it. If you have other ideas, I'd love to hear them. A few people suggested some after the last service, but I still think mine's better. (laughs) A posture of radical openness. Lest we think the Christian life is limited to Sunday mornings, Radical openness helps us to experience God in our every day. If salvation is a life, then we need to be awake and aware of God, God's presence throughout our entire day, throughout our whole life. Radical openness wakes us up to Christ's abiding presence in every moment. And the secret sauce here is attention or awareness. And I think this is where artists like painters and poets can serve us so well. Their eyes are trained to see what most of us miss throughout our days, and they can teach us to see, and teaching us to see, they can teach us to pray. And I think we can catch some of what I'm talking about in a poem that's printed on the inside back page of your bulletin, I invite you to turn there. I'm not gonna read the whole poem, but I'll read some of it to give you a sense of what this can look like in our days. This is a poem called How I Talk to God by a poet named Kelly Belmont, and it's from an anthology of poetry that uh, many of us are reading throughout Lent. Coffee in one hand, leaning in to share. Listen, how I talk to God. Mama, you're special. Three year old touches my cheek. How God talks to me. While driving, I make lists, done, do, hope, love, hate, try, how I talk to God, above the highway, hawk, high, alone, free, focused, how God talks to me, rash, impetuous chatter followed by silence. How I talk to God. First, second, third, fourth chance to hear, then another, how God talks to me. Fetal position under flannel sheets weeping. How I talk to God. Moonlight on pillow tending to my open wounds. How God talks to me. I love this rhythm of this poem because it's the rhythm of conversation talking to God God talking to us and that's what prayer is might be a little unconventional but I think this is a very real way of praying that's possible when we're radically open and aware of God throughout our days and I think that if we learn to pay attention like this for even 10 minutes a day this habit of heart would expand over time, and it would, experience, it would enrich our experience of Christ. We'd experience Him more deeply in worship and in prayer, maybe even in line while we're waiting at the grocery store. I want to end this morning by reading a passage from Saint Ignatius, and it's something that I've been meditating on throughout 2022. It's from a devotional that I have been using, and I think it ties together all the things that I've been wanting to talk about this morning. Listen to what St. Ignatius says. There are very few who realize what God would make of them if they abandoned themselves entirely to His hands and let themselves be formed by His grace. Anyone could become a saint if they would let themselves be formed by the grace of God rather than resist the work he wants to do. I think God wants to do a work of beauty to make a beautiful work of art out of each one of us. And the question we have to answer is, will we let him? Amen.